So go to the evidence whenever you can, right? It's like Abraham Lincoln said, don't trust everything you read on the internet. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. much everybody for coming. I'm Chris Changin Phillips, historian laureate for the city of Edmonton. Let's Find Out is a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi, Waskahikan. Each episode, I take questions from locals about Edmonton's history, and then we find out the answers together. So this episode is called Let's Find Out How We Know What's True. And it starts at the Needle Vinyl Tavern on a snowy afternoon. I would like to acknowledge first that we are gathered here today on Treaty 6 territory. The city and its citizens have benefited from this peace and friendship treaty since 1877, and this land is the home of many indigenous peoples, the Cree, the Nakota, Dene, Blackfoot, Métis, and many others. So from this settler, thank you for welcoming us to that land. Uh, we are joined today by some wonderful panelists who are going to help us with a little experiment, uh, which is bringing live people to ask questions about history to them, to, right to the researchers. Um, so we're going to have a chance for you guys to ask questions. I'll tell you a little bit about the format in a bit. But our three panelists today are Dr. Keisha Supernant, a Métis anthropology professor and archaeologist based at the U of A. Dave Cornoy, one of my favorite writers, a political watcher, and the creator of the excellent blog, DaveBerta.ca. And Sarah Hoyles, radio and podcast producer. One of her many projects is uh, that other podcast about Edmonton history you might have heard of? <laughs> ECAMP, the Edmonton City as Museum Project podcast. So the format of today's event is that I'm going to ask these folks some questions just to get the conversation rolling and get let you get to know them a little better um, and then you're gonna fill out those cards that are on your tables with your questions about history and you're gonna put your name on them because at the end of the intermission we're gonna go through all those questions and we're gonna pick the ones that are uh, most answerable today uh, because there are lots of interesting avenues to go down history uh, but not all of them are easy to do without a whole stack of research books. To start off, wonderful panelists, I wanted to ask you, what are the most common misconceptions that people have about the process of research that you do and also the presentation of research? Keisha, do you mind starting us off? Uh, not at all. So as Chris mentioned, I'm an archeologist and there are many misconceptions about the work that we do. I have the kind of job where when I sit down in an airplane and somebody asks me what I do, I have to sort of sit and say, do I want a two-hour conversation or not? Uh, and if I don't, I don't tell them what I do. Because <laughs> as an archaeologist, we get usually one of two questions. One is, oh, did you hear about the new dinosaur dig somewhere? We don't do dinosaurs. We do people. I'm fundamentally interested in, in ancient people and not ancient dinosaurs. But that happens a lot in Alberta, especially because it's so well known for dinosaur and paleontological research. 
And then the second one is, oh, like Indiana Jones. I always wanted to do that. That sounds so exciting. And in terms of how we actually do research in archaeology, well, I personally think it's exciting. Most people, when I explain it to them, realize that it's actually quite a detail-oriented and can be quite a tedious job. We spend a lot of time uh, going through material, digging big holes very slowly, spending time in the lab, examining and analyzing materials, and sometimes they are these minute little traces of, of ancient people. So there's a sense of sort of glory in, in our work that uh, is not really well captured by the day-to-day -day of what I do, even though I personally love it. So you've never run away from poison darts or mm -hmm. a giant ball? Not, not so much, and I haven't had the opportunity to, you know, uh, defend the world from Nazi uh, takeover just yet, so. Hey, this might be our chance. You never know, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Keisha. Dave, what are some common misconceptions about the research that you do into the history topics you write about and also the presentation of them? Well, I mean, I think the two, the two most common misconceptions that I, I come, up, uh, come up against is, I mean, first of all, um, Blogging isn't my full-time job, so I, you know, I write this blog, DaveBerta.ca, and it's not my full-time job. And and secondly, uh, I'm not a professional journalist. I have a day job. Um, I'm I'm very lucky uh, to have a, 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 a great employer who who lets me write my own blog and write about politics. I work I work for United Nurses of Alberta, and in my in my day job, my real job, um, and writing about politics and writing about Alberta political history is something that I do in my spare time. It's my hobby. It's what I'm interested in. Um, so a lot of what I mean, a lot of the the the, the uh, a lot of what I do is really I just I read a lot of I read a lot about history in terms of in history books, and I read a lot of pay, pay attention to what government is doing, and I pay attention to uh, historical records that are available on online. Um, so yeah, that's I think that's pretty much the common misconception. I don't you know I'm not you know chasing bull or having boulders chase me or anything. But uh, you know I, I get th people threaten to sue me every now and then, but. But um, that's, you know, it's, it's not as dramatic as it sounds. Maybe that is the measure of the professional journalist. Have somebody, has somebody threatened to see you? <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Uh, Sarah, what are some common misconceptions that you encounter with your work? I was just trying to think, have I ever, has anyone tried to sue me? And no, that has not <laughs> happened yet. Yet. Okay, so misconceptions around being a journalist. Uh, I've worked for CBC as well as different print publications in CKUA, and then my most recent iteration is freelance podcast producer, so that's where the eCamp comes in, the other history podcast. Um, I think one of the main misconceptions is that we just have endless time, um, and that you know we can talk to everyone and anyone. But truly, it's cold calling people. There's a lot of the cold calling of people. Hey, I want to talk to you about X topic. And um, you got you to speak really quickly because people are like, blah, blah, blah. They just hear blah, 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 blah. And if you work for somebody that has a corporation, per se, like CBC, if you get that in there as early as you can, then people kind of perk up. Ooh. Ooh, I, I like that. I listen to such and such. So um, I think it's the idea of that we don't have limitless time and that more isn't more. I mean, that actually can be used as a, as a really great tool because when you have just a short little bit of time, as you know, you get right to the point and it gets focused. I guess it's a balance, though, because I don't want to... I used to do daily news when I first got started, 
And one of the things that I disliked about it is that I had a deadline that day and I literally only had those five minutes to talk to somebody. So it felt like it commodified a person. So it's like, I need 10 seconds from you, ready, set, go. Um, okay, now I, got, now I gotta go get my other source. Um, whereas having a bit more time, longer form, doing more documentary style, there's, there is more time, but having more time isn't always the best. It's not like, I had a two hour conversation with somebody, then you have to cut all that tape. Ugh. I know there are other podcasters in this room. I'm, I'm sure we could have a great conversation about how to decide on length. Let's find out, as you know, is usually like 45 minutes to an hour-ish. Ecamp is a tight, like, 12 minutes each episode, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. That's creative work right there. Yeah. Um, what drives you to follow these rabbit holes through history? Dave? I, I'm just a big political nerd. I'm a history nerd. I've, yeah, I've always been interested in, in, in poli Alberta, Alberta politics specifically. I, I studied um, political science at the University of Alberta. I did a minor in history. Um, pretty much most of the political science classes I took, I, I took as many Canadian politics classes as, as I could, and I took as many Canadian history classes as I could, with, with, the, well, with, with the big exception. This actually this is funny, because I write about Alberta politics in Canadian, well, mostly Alberta politics, but one of my favorite history classes I ever took was History of the Habsburg Monarchy. And it was such a fascinating class, and the professor was so engaging. And, uh, and I felt like, uh, you know, I could have done my, if I had taken the class earlier in my degree, I could have done like a, a thesis on the Habsburg monarchy. Uh, and then we'd, talk, we'd be talking about my Habsburg monarchy blog right now. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so I, 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 in general, um, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in, in politics and political process and political parties and, and narratives and communications and how political parties uh, uh, create those narratives and, and, and create their messaging. Um, and that plays such a huge role when you're looking at, uh, I mean, look, when you're looking at politics, understanding narratives is so important because it kind of unravels everything and you can kind of understand why certain politicians are taking certain positions and why certain politicians are taking other positions. And in the context of, of history and political history, when, it, when you go and look back, and I say I'll write a blog post about uh, the social credit era of Alberta. Um, Understanding the context of the time and the narratives that were going on during that period is so important to understanding why a bunch of nuts like the Social Credit Party were able to get elected in 1935 here in this province because they were they had totally weird ideas like they wanted to print their own money and nationalize banks and control what the press said and and uh, and all sorts of weird they had this thing called the A plus B theorem and they had you know is this created by this guy named Major Douglas from the United Kingdom and anyway. Uh, uh, but understanding the context of the time, I mean, the, Alberta was in the midst of the Great Depression. People were desperate. People were looking for something new. There was a, uh, a government, the United Farmers of Alberta had been in power for, for a number of years. And there was a big sex scandal with Branley and, and the, the UFA had a falling out. And so the Socrates kind of kind of came out of nowhere. Um, but they didn't really come out of nowhere because they, you know, you could see that kind of the, those narratives and the kind of groundswell coming up before. Um, so, yeah, understanding that the, the narratives and, and the context and... and um, uh, is really important. So that's one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm always really interested in and, and really drives me in, in, uh, in terms of, of, of writing about politics today and what's going on with the Notley government or what was going on with Redford, which is, which, which, you know, that was a fascinating time in Alberta politics. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, but it's also something that plays a huge role in understanding uh, the political history of our province at the same time. Thanks. Uh, Sarah, what, what drives you to want to dig into this? Just the... You know, there's movies about New York City and books about 
Paris and you, how many different TV shows are based in Los Angeles, but where is Edmonton? Nowhere. <laughs> and I love this place. I, well, I should say that I spent my teens and my early 20s being like, I can't wait to get out of here. I hate this place. And when I get a job, I'm never coming back. And then it kept pulling me back every time I got away. That I was like, you know what? It's actually pretty good. And I've now just, I finally embraced it. I love Edmonton. It's not an obvious place. And that's what I tell people, like, why do you live in Edmonton? And I say, yeah, maybe on from the surface, it doesn't seem like there's much, but just underneath the surface, there's so much happening. It might be the winter that everyone's just like under a blanket, but there are so many great stories that should be told. The New York stories are no more valid than the stories that are here. I don't need to look anywhere else. There are incredible stories, incredible people, crazy things that happened awful things. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no limit. So to me, I'm just like, I don't need to go anywhere else. I'll just stay here. I don't know about you, but I've had no problem finding enough topics for podcasts each time because there's so, almost every topic that someone's asked me about, there's barely anything written about it. You get to like, go into um, new territory with pretty much every episode. Precisely. I mean, sometimes there would be stories where there was this really great story about the first female transit um, bus driver in Edmonton. And I was like, oh, I love that story. I can't wait to tell that story. I'm going to put it during International Women's Day. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be perfect. And then I started doing some research and I saw that some other organizations, media organizations had covered it. And I thought, you know, that's great. It's a great story but there are how many other untold stories. So I'm going to go, and I, you actually, this is where we did some teamwork. You, I was just asking you, like, what stories are you not able to really cover? And you were talking about that there was this great farming community that was all Japanese people, that um, they had been ostracized in Edmonton, and they were told, no, you can't have a liquor license because of who you are. So these people moved outside of the city, you gave me that kernel. I followed up that kernel. There was hardly anything written about it, so I had to go talk to like real people, <laughs> actual people that were still alive, which was incredible. I think that's the other piece too, is this desire to talk to people, the actual people that were involved. I don't like they're still alive. Some of them are still alive, and I want to get them on tape before they're no longer around. Before there isn't a chance. Yeah. yeah. Keisha, what, what drives you to want to dig into history? I, I think for me, it's a lot this idea that archaeologists tell parts of history that are not written down and that the people are not around to tell in the same way. And so I'm definitely driven by that sense of trying to find something out that is not known or that has been forgotten. I, I resist a little bit the terminology discovery, even though it's common in my field, because a lot of these things that we study, people made... So we're kind of uncovering the histories that don't make it in to the history books, that don't make it into the documentary record, and the deeper histories of this, this place. And so thinking about Edmonton in particular, I'm very much about understanding the indigenous history of Edmonton, which is much deeper than the settler history, but it's not written down. 
and a lot of indigenous people have not done their own history. They know their history, but they haven't shared it in the same ways, haven't had the opportunity to share it in the same ways. And so I see archaeology as, as a means to help bring out the other, the sort of hidden bits of history that don't end up in those, in those history books. Um, and I'm just fascinated by, by people and how people live and how people lived Right? Humans have been on this planet for a very, very, very long time and have lived in a huge diversity of ways. And I'm so interested in how different people lived at different times. So in a very broad sense, as an archaeologist, I, I want to know the kind of complexity and variability in human history and how that we can take the materials left over to try to make sense of those. And um, in particular, how people think about themselves and how they belong. I'm really interested in identity and, and how people come to be part of a group. And so I like to look at the material record to try to make sense of how people did that before they could write down who they were. So what did it mean to be an indigenous woman here four or 5,000 years ago? And that's a question that archeology span is one way to try to answer. Um, I'm so excited to have all of you here today because I feel like we're in this time where this work of digging into the past and finding stories and working really hard to tell them accurately, it feels like people are, we, we value it less and less right now, and also we're just inundated with misinformation. And I, I wanna read you this comment that I saw a little while ago on Jezebel. There was an article about Kellyanne Conway. Uh, she's an advisor to Trump. And um, someone replied to the article with a, a, a video and it said, uh, they were explaining the video, they said, that moment when she got read for the absurd liar she is. Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. Anderson Cooper just doesn't say a thing, he just reflexively can't stop laughing at her. <laughs> I don't think you can prove those numbers one way or the other. There's no way to really quantify crowds. We all know that. You can laugh at me all you want. I'll just ignore it. I'm bigger than that. And several people replied, you know, this is an edited clip, right? This, these clips from Anderson Cooper come from a completely different video. And that original poster who put up the video said, I didn't know that. Though it's well done, they appear to be in the same outfits, so from the same broadcast. Still, it brings me joy. If it didn't actually happen that way, you just know it happened that way in Anderson's head. So I'm sure that this person felt quite pleased with themselves with that answer, but it terrified me that it didn't matter to them whether it was true, because it felt true. Why does it matter whether what we put out there is true? Uh, who wants to take a stab at this one? <laughs> Do you want to give it a shot, I, Dave? I mean, I, I want to say, of, of course it matters. Like, of course <laughs> well, it matters. Yeah, absolutely, if it's, of course I agree. It matters if it's yes. true. <laughs> um, I mean, I, just, to, just to comment on, 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 on the on the, what you were talking about with the, with the website and, and people's comments, I think that one of the things that troubles me the most, and and writing about Alberta politics um, and writing this blog, uh, you know, I I pay pay a lot of attention to social media and a lot of the political political discussion that's happening online, because uh, a lot of the most heated and and sometimes most interesting political political discussion these days is actually happening on the internet. And and I think one of the most troubling things that I've seen. Uh, you know, we, we, anybody who's on Twitter or on Facebook will know this, um, but over the past 10 years or so is this, you know, there was this point in time where, you know, the social media looked like it would be this great 
equalizer. This it was this it would be an online democracy, and everyone would have an equal voice. And and it it's it, it a lot of you know especially in politics, it's really devolved into echo chambers and people seeking confirmation, seeking seeking uh, approval of their own bias, right? So confirmation bias. Um, and I, I think that's something that that's really troubling. We see this in, pol in politics today. You know, Alberta politics, it's very heated. We have, you know, two political parties, the NDP and, and the Wild Rose Party, who are, are, you know, or whatever the Wild Rose Party will become, the Jason Kenney Party. Um, uh, no, but it, some, something will be created before the next election, presumably. Um, uh, and and you, you see supporters of these, you know, some of the, the most partisan supporters of, of both parties, and they just... They they're stuck in their they're stuck in their own bubble basically and, and they don't they don't believe anything that's that disagrees with their own bias uh, and I think that's really troubling because especially in politics I mean we need to we need to learn how to talk to each other I mean we can argue and we can debate and we can discuss and and that's great we should but uh, you know if you can't uh, identify with the other side or if you can't you know if if you can't even come to the the the, the realization or, or or admit that the other side might have a point which is kind of the point part where we've reached where people just don't even admit the other side has a point. They're just, you know, the Wild Rose are a bunch of fascists and the New Democrats are a bunch of communists and that's it. And it's like, well, okay, well, we're not going to get anywhere. It's unhealthy for politics. And I think, I mean, it's nothing really new, but, uh, but it's troubling in terms of social media. It's, it's so accessible and it's just developed that way. And I think that's, I find that really troubling in terms of, of how, that's, how social media has played a role in, in that. Keisha. I think it, for me, it's important to distinguish between something that's factual and then having differing opinions about what has happened versus something that's demonstrably did not happen. And that's the shift that I think I've seen more clearly in the past few months that is particularly concerning. So it's one thing to have a different opinion about an event that occurred, and there can be different interpretations. I mean, we're all historians of a sort. We know that historians can write different stories about the same thing, but there's a question of whether or not it even happened in the first place is what's worrying. It's this, this idea that if I tell you it and don't have to prove it, you believe me anyway. And there is really the, the, the thing that we've disconnected that sense of, of belief from any, any actual concrete, factual uh, evidence. And, and the disconnecting of evidence from belief, I think, is a very is a very troubling one. Because even if that evidence can be interpreted multiple ways, we can at least evaluate the interpretation. And this comes back to how we do it in archeology. span We're always interpreting evidence, that's what we do. But we, can we have ways to evaluate someone's interpretation of that evidence. But if they completely make something up, we have ways to say, well, that's actually not supported by the evidence. But when someone says, I don't need evidence, then how do you possibly make an interpretation based on any kind of structural, uh, sort of rigorous way of, of doing it. So I've, I see that disconnect to be really problematic. Does it matter? I mean, if the story feels good, does it, you know, why, why can't I believe it? Like, we were talking about the, the story of how the first peoples arrived in the Americas, right? What, why, why does it matter if I got a story I believe in my head that's maybe not factually based? <laughs> Well, your beliefs have implications, right? And so I think this is especially true maybe in politics, but I will use the example from my field to maybe illustrate this a bit more for, for folks. So 
There, for a long time, archaeology belie- archaeologists believed that the first arrival of people to North and South America was across the Bering Land Bridge and through an ice-free corridor between two glaciers that opened up around 13,000 years ago. And then those people came down primarily following large game like mammoth and mastodon, and they populated North America. That's the story I heard when I was a kid. (laughs) That's the story we all heard when we we were kids. And they were known as the Clovis people, and this was known as the Clovis first model. In the late 90s, there were, well, sites have been around for a while that arguably have evidence that disputes it, but there was one in the 1990s which started to turn things. It was a site found in Chile, in southern Chile. Uh, It's known as Monte Verde. And it has evidence of human occupation around the same time of the Clovis people in North America, but it's a very long way away, and it doesn't look anything like Clovis sites. And a whole group of archeologists actually went down, they were known as the Clovis police, and they scrutinized every element of this site, and they sort of begrudgingly said, well, this seems legitimate based on our way of of thinking about the past, and it started to disrupt that model. That was in 1996, 1997. It's taken 20 years for the Clovis first theory to finally no longer be the major. I guess still, there's still a few holders on, shall we say, but for the most part, archeologists working in North America recognize that there are sites that predate that. So there, there had to have been another route. There was not a viable route between glaciers until about 13,000 years ago. So there had to be another way people got here. Uh, and it's taken a long time, even for people who practice that interpretive uh, model and, and consider themselves to be scientists. It, even when faced with evidence that disproved them, some of them still hung on and said, this cannot be true, this cannot be real. But that actually has real implications for how the discipline is practiced. It's ruined careers, right? It's really had negative impacts on people who practice archeology, span because people do science in this case, and they have their own biases, and they have their own um, egos, shall we say. And it becomes very difficult to disrupt them because they are so invested in that explanation. And they've built their entire careers and their entire lives on that. And it has to do with their own sort of power, their own reputation. And if we think about how false news gets circulated now, in part there's those questions of power, right? What gives you power? If you tell people something and they believe you without you needing to prove it, it gives you an immense amount of power over other people, right? So. So part of the reason why it matters maybe is that it, it can hold back entire fields if, it, if we're not willing to concede that something we believed is yes. not actually based in in fact. Yeah, it can hold back knowledge, right? Sarah, did you want to take a crack at this? <laughs> maybe I'm going to sound really pessimistic here. <laughs> um, but right now I kind of feel like I mean, there's this, the ideal of, yes, we want to make sure that there's the fact and that we all agree on this one base fact um, or facts. But right now I feel like we're, we're post-truth, like we're, we're beyond it now. Um, we haven't figured it out yet because of the addition of social media, because of the democratization of... Um, of media, you know, it was heralded, you know, everyone's gonna be able to, to write, everyone's gonna be able to, there's the tools out there for anybody to make a podcast. We or all a have, yeah, you know, <laughs> there's, so there's this ability that anybody can do it. 
not anybody can do it well. <laughs> um, so to me, I feel like we haven't figured it out yet, and I don't know that there's been, maybe that's a cop-out, I don't know. Um, I, I just, yeah, I, I, I feel like there hasn't been a point where people have said, ah, uh, enough, I don't want to be in my echo chamber anymore. I think people are kind of, you know, enjoying it and like <laughs> luxuriating in it. Uh, and then maybe something will happen where they decide, no, we need to have common ground so we can move forward. But I don't know that we're there yet. If that is the case, that it's just the fact that these types of media are new and we don't know how to filter out what's, what's accurate and what's not, is this something that's just gonna take us a couple hundred years to get through like it did with the printing press? Well, that example of the printing press. I mean, we, were, we spoke about that. There's a really interesting anecdote on hardcore history, if you guys listen to this blog, uh, or to this podcast, um, about how the advent of the printing press created all this chaos for quite a while in Europe as people um, sort of dismantled the idea that there was one divine truth coming from God because, hey, maybe we could print a new type of Bible with a new interpretation and, hey, there's this pamphlet coming and it seems legit. And uh, it, was, it was chaos for quite a while as people started popping up and saying, well, you should believe me and follow my insane religion and you should believe me and follow my insane movement. It took a while for people to filter out, oh, okay, we don't have to believe him just because he has access to a, a press. Um, so is that, is that the situation we're in right now? <laughs> I think so. That's my really pessimistic view. I, I mean, I, I do think that it I hopefully won't take us 200 years, but you never know. Um, I do think there is a lot to figure out, though. And I, and I do agree that we need to think through, and I don't think we have yet good answers for how we filter information. I think we all like to stay in our comfort zones. And I see this with my students. So I, as part of my role, I teach. And students are kind of happiest when they're relatively comfortable, when they're learning in a way they expect, learning the types of things they're kind of expecting to learn. So when I bring up something that makes them uncomfortable, you can feel things shift in the room. Um, I like to talk about the fact that uh, believing in ancient aliens is racist, and when I tell students that if they believe in ancient aliens, then they're probably racist, they all kind of go, <gasps> we're not racist, we're not, you know, they, and they don't say that, but they certainly you feel that way in the room. And I think echo chambers make us comfortable. They make us sort of feel good in our belief. They, they validate us in that, okay, other people believe what I believe. And, and that sense of validation and comfort is I think what we have to start to work to disrupt. Because it's the comfort that allows us to become complacent as well. Um, when we're not hearing the things that are difficult, when we're not facing the difficult history of you know, our country, we have a, a prime example of this this week. Apparently, we we're supposed to focus on the positives of residential schools because, because people are un, you know, uncomfortable with the fact that this was genocide. According to Senator Lynn Bayak. Lynn Bayak, yeah. And, and so I think these types of things, people don't want to step outside of their, their comfort zones. I'm not saying I, I can um, give you a, a set of exactly how to do that, but I think we have to, to start to think how, that being uncomfortable is actually a really good place to be. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, and especially using that in the context of politics, I mean, yeah, it, should, it, it shouldn't be easy. I mean, democracy shouldn't be easy. It's something we have to, 
if it, yeah, it's something we have to work at. If, if I mean, once it starts becoming easy, then we become complacent, and then we become, we become apathetic, and we become disinterested, not engaged, and then the system stops working. Um, so, I mean, I think it, you, know, you need to be able to work with people who disagree with you and, and kind of grind out those ideas and grind out policies and politics that work. Um, and if you're refusing to talk to, you know, or if you're refusing to engage or you're taking positions that are just putting up brick walls or, or actually building literal walls, uh, then, then, you know, you're, I think you're, you're hurting, you're hurting, well, you're hurting, our, you're hurting democracy, really. You're hurting how the, how the process works. I mean, I think with j just the, the one point, you talked about the printing press and you talked about, you know, the, 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 the different ideas and the, the fake news or whatever that, that came out hundreds of years ago. And I, I just have the one anecdote that I love to share about when, when people talk about, oh, fake news is a brand new thing. It's like, well, no, actually, it's not really. <clears throat> Back in, I think it was 1877, uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier was a member of parliament in Quebec. And he, back at the time, context, back at the time, um, it was common for uh, when a member of parliament was appointed to cabinet, the federal cabinet, they had to then resign as an MP and run in a by-election. And then, and then if they were re-elected, because technically, I mean, the way the parliamentary system works, a backbench government M MP isn't actually technically part of the government, the cabinet is the government. Um, but anyway, we've, we've totally abandoned that, that convention. Um, and people just get appointed and kicked out of cabinet left, right, and center. Um, but so Ward Laurier ran for, was appointed to cabinet, and he stepped down as MP and ran in a by-election. And in the by-election, this was a, a you know conservative, uh, you know, a small C conservative, Catholic Quebec riding in the in the 1800s. And someone his opponent, his conservative opponent, spread a rumor that uh, that he and his wife had not baptized their child their children, which was you can imagine how damaging that was, which was true. But, but Lord Wilfred Laurier and his wife didn't have any children. So, yeah, but so, so then he lost the by-election by like 24 votes. Um, anyway, he end, so, so he ended up winning the, running in the next general election and becoming prime minister, so it ended up working out for him in the end. But, uh, but just shows that, you know, the, the whole gossip, you know, the gossip mill, fake news, it's not a new thing. It's something that's been around for a while, and it, it has real-world implications, um, as it did for Sir Wilfred Laurier on that, that evening. Well, let's give these fine people here a couple tools that they can use to figure out what is true and what's not, and how credible a source of information is. What, what, are, what are some tools we could leave them with today? Sourcing. Mm -hmm. That is fundamental. I mean, in my line of work, uh, it's you go speak with people, but then you go and you do the follow-up. So you're, if you're, I mean, Wikipedia is incredible for research but it is not the only source we go to. And a, the great thing is going down to the footnotes and then following those links off and they shoot you off into the ether and you, you figure out, oh, is that real? What publication is that coming from? And you have to drill down. Like, it's work. You have to drill down. I mean, truly, I just, I don't want to post, on my Facebook, on my Twitter, on my what, what have you, I don't want to post something that is not, legitimate that isn't based in in fact and something that actually happened so i like to go and find out well, who's the source who said it so the actual publication that's putting it out there whether it's a podcast or a print organization or a person um sourcing is is fundamental it's work though you have to you have to not just retweet or not just share <laughs> it's key to Look at who's saying it, and also why. 
<laughs> if a person is posting something, what is it? I think it speaks to that whole context piece. Anybody want to expand on that? Why I feel like this relates yeah, to yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I think in terms of I mean, in terms of politics, I mean, understanding why someone said something, understanding the context. I mean, the thing to understand about politics is that partisanship is an incredibly powerful force. You have, uh, I mean, the, the example, the big example now that's, that's happening right now when, when you talk about partisanship and political narratives is is the carbon tax. We hear a lot about the carbon tax from from different politicians. And I mean, a carbon tax, which is kind of this market-driven mechanism, is essentially a conservative idea. I mean, it, you have people like Preston Manning advocating for a carbon tax, but, but conservatives, partisans, so political, so conservative opposition politicians have taken a strong position against the, almost the very existence of a carbon tax, I would argue pretty much just because it was NDP and liberal governments that implemented it, even though it's kind of a conservative idea. They may, they, what they should be disagreeing with is, is how it was implemented, um, but instead they've just like lit a torch and trying to light the whole thing on fire. Um, so 20 years from now, 100 years from now, we might be totally confused about why supposedly free market conservatives are, are going are advocating against an idea like a carbon tax which is kind of a conservative idea but it's it's partisanship it's it's trying to create narratives it's trying to destroy your enemy you know or who they they, they perceive to be their enemy which they shouldn't it's, it's their their opponents they shouldn't see them as enemies um, so yeah understanding the context is is hugely important and that comes into reading through historical references and, and newspapers, right, too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's tons of references or tons of resources online. Uh, you just, honestly, you just have to dig for them. Uh, a few resources that I, 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 I'm on all the time and I use um, Google Newspaper Archives. Google has gone and scanned a treasure trove of old newspapers, including newspapers here in Alberta, Cal the Calgary Herald, the Calgary Journal, which I think used to exist, and the Edmonton Bulletin, the Edmonton Journal. Um, the, the Peel Library has a ton of resources, um, and there's an, I think there's some resources I've used through the University of Lethbridge ar online archives with, from old newspapers. And it's just great, it's a great treasure trove. Um, but you really have to sit through and look through them because they're all scanned, but the search feature, the search it just like does not work. So like you, you just can't find anything through the through the uh, through the search bar. Uh, so you actually have to go through. And if you ha it, you know it, it helps if you have an idea of like what time period you're you're interested in, and you can actually go through and scan through. It's kind of like a microfiche except for on your screen. So it's it's very cool. And then the other resource that that I, I found really helpful is and you know God bless them. These these people are saints. The people who work at Hansard which is the official transcript. They, they create the official transcript of every, everything that's said in the Alberta legislature. Uh, they do such a phenomenal job. Um, you can go online and you can find uh, transcripts, uh, Hanser transcripts going back to 1971, which was when, when the official record was actually started. They actually started keeping an official record of what people said in the legislature. And you can go back and search debates. You can go back and, and find uh, legislative bills uh, going back all the way to 1905. So you can go see the first piece of legislation that was tabled in the Alberta legislature in 1905. Um, and then because, I mean, I mean, it's a little limited, like I said, because we, we, they, they only started keeping the records in 1971, but, but the folks at Hansard have gone through and scanned from like, I think 1905 all the way to 1971, they've gone through newspapers and scanned articles and, and they're available. And this, this, they, they have a search engine that actually works. Um, it's funny, Google's search engine doesn't actually work for this, but, but the Alberta legislature's one does. Uh, and you can go through and search newspaper articles going back to 1905 from 1971 uh, about debates that were happening in the legislature, about committees and, uh, and politics. And it's, it's a really fascinating, it's a really excellent resource for looking into, um, looking into 
the history of Alberta politics. I just want to add one thing. As you wade into this, the, the, these troves are amazing. Peel's Prairie Provinces is an outstanding website, but it's also good to prepare your, arm yourself with knowing what perspective some of these newspapers are written from, because the Edmonton Bulletin, for example, was uh, strongly anti-social credit. Yes, it was a very, I think they were, I think they were a very liberal newspaper. The, the Bulletin, if you go and read them, like, it's just, like some of the stuff, like the Bulletin and a couple of the newspapers, um, like the Saskatoon, uh, Star Phoenix, the Regina Leader, they, these guys were like so anti-social credit. You will not find anything nice written about William Aberhart, even though he won, like he won an election, I think he won two elections. Um, uh, so Albertans liked him at the time, uh, or a lot of Albertans did, but but the uh, the newspaper men, who I imagine sitting with their top hats and their cigars at the time, uh, and they'll, they're, you know they they did they didn't they didn't they didn't like him. So you, you'll see that reflected in uh, in uh, in the newspapers of the newspapers of the time, which I think is really interesting because people talk to talk about the bias of newspapers, saying oh you know post media is so right wing and they're so conservative, and yeah you know there is an editorial you know there, there's definitely an editorial slant, but like you go back like. 70 years and you look at newspapers and the editorial slant was also like heavily included in the report in the actual reporting um, you know like you knew what a liberal newspaper was and you knew what a Tory newspaper was and they were very open in terms of of, of making clear who who they supported on the political in the in the political arena so it when looking at those newspapers you really have to keep that the, that context of the perspective at, at, at uh, uh, in mind all right so so far we've got uh, dig down, find out what the actual source of the information is, figure out the biases, the perspectives that the writers or uh, documenters are coming from. Keisha, what else can we add to the toolkit? Uh, I mean, I, I think you have to go to what the actual evidence, not just the source, but what is the evidence actually based on, right? So first of all, I'll just on the concepts of, of sourcing, if you come into my class and write a paper and don't source, you fail, and you may actually get your program suspended or get kicked out of university. So one of the skills that we try to help students learn is what does research look like and how what is legitimate research practice. And no, you can't just quote Wikipedia, but you can use Wikipedia to find things to quote, right? So I think also going back even deeper to what is it based on originally. So not just who said it, but what did they say it about? And what do we know? What do other people say about it? So you need to try to get a broad base of perspectives if you can. That can be difficult in this day and age because you do go very deep down that rabbit hole. And I would love to see everything, every meme sourced. And don't, also I think a healthy dose of skepticism. So don't take everything you see at, at face value. Always have a bit of a grain of salt. And I'm not a cynic by nature. I'm a very positive person. But I think a dose of skepticism is extremely important. And I have gotten better and better at this on my own social media of looking at like a quote, right? And it'll say, Nelson Mandela said X. And then you go and, and I actually be like, it sounds like something Nelson Mandela might say, but how do I know if it's true? Well, I go to sourcing and then I try to find maybe the original speech, right? So I, I've come from a field which depends on evidence. So if I read someone's paper and I cannot go back to their data and do that analysis myself and come up with the same result, it invalidates their result. So I think it's really important whenever you can to go back to the original. So not just to who said it, but try to find um, what you can about what the actual evidence is. And as much as possible, multiple perspectives. Because I think bias is really important. It's inherent in everything that we do. 
people do these things, we all have biases, right? But if people are being explicit about it, and I think that's actually really interesting about an older, uh, older newspaper sources being more kind of obvious in their bias and that we're kind of trying to cover our bias now. And I think that's another, another serious issue. But get down to that evidence. Um, one tool that, that is not mentioned is there's the Internet Archive which is a, a huge body of materials. and Ar Archive.org, right? Yes, yeah. archive.org. We're actually working on maybe bringing a Canadian version of that to the University of Alberta, which is going to be really exciting. But my favorite tool of theirs is the Wayback Machine, which is old websites. So it's one thing to go to scan newspapers, but the web now has its own history. And you can, you know, go back to things from 20 years ago and see the, the lovely, you know, late 90s Web 1.0 uh, layout of all these websites. Uh, but also, there's information there that has otherwise been lost. And that's going to be really interesting, thinking through how the digital is going to affect us. Because if things aren't in print and the server goes offline, what happens to them? Right? We can't, you know, in 200 years, you can't go back to an archive and find an old printed newspaper. If it's born digital, there are different consequences for how information gets archived that we really are going to have to think through. And, and archive.org, they're doing a great job as much as they can um, to, to try to keep a lot of those born digital type of, of things as well. So go to the evidence whenever you can, right? It's like Abraham Lincoln said, don't trust everything you read on the internet. <laughs> just like that, just like that. I actually wanted to just talk about the, the idea of the multiple sources. I think within journalism, there is the idea that you want to get, you know, two sides of the story. If you can do more than that, that's great. And I always like to, I liken it to uh, a couple when they've broken up. The one person has one story. Oh, that person was awful. I can't believe. And then you talk to the other person. Oh, they did this, the worst thing. I can't believe. And the truth is somewhere in the middle between those two stories. So I always try to get, I mean, in journalism, the idea is, is you always get both sides, but many stories have more than just two sides. Great. All right, well, I feel like that's a good place to leave off before intermission. So come back in 15 minutes or so, and thank you to our panelists here. Hey, listeners. Chris here, not live. Well, extra not live because this is me not at the needle. Anyway, during the intermission, audience members wrote down their questions and their names on little cue cards. Then they put them in our little metal question bucket. And Keisha, Dave, Sarah, and I ran down to the green room to pick a few for the second half of the show. <laughs> Unnecessary, but welcome. Thank you guys for sticking around. So we've flipped through your big pile of questions and we've picked some that we think are answerable <laughs> um, today. Uh, Morgana Folkman, can you please come up to the front? We want you to read your question right here at this mic. Hi. Get right up, like, right up. like okay. kiss it. Is that yeah. better? Yeah. It's right. so the point of being uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I, yeah. Good. I'm in a good place now, then. Um, are you conscious of your own bias, or why do you try and hold, or, or do you try and hold it in your mind while you're doing your research or writing? Um, how do you deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I mean, I am for sure 
tr constantly trying to be aware of my own biases. Like, I, I, I know for sure that I am more likely to fall for a story about Donald Trump being corrupt or someone in his cabinet being found to be corrupt. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do think about it a lot. I think the I try as much as possible when I find a story that fits a frame I already have in my head. Those are the stories I try to find extra sources on. And I usually try to prep more for interviews where I know I already agree with the person that I'm interviewing because I, I feel like I'm, my defenses are gonna be down if I don't do that extra prep. Uh, as a journalist in journalism school, the profs basically said, no one is objective, no one. That's why you have to talk to multiple people and you have to get sources and you have to go out and it's not about you. It's about gathering of different sources to then tell a story. Um, in regards to the eCamp podcast, I, I really struggle because of, of who I am and what my lineage is. And so I have a particular voice, a particular perspective and so when I was going out to do stories for that, I wanted to make sure that I was getting different voices, different stories, different perspectives. Um, women, for one, but people from all different kinds of backgrounds. I mean, also just audio-wise, it's so nice to hear different, different tonal qualities. Um, so, yeah, I, it's, I, but I also have to admit that I'm not objective. I think that's a really great starting point place. That's where I always start is I am not objective. I am not bias free. I need to talk to other people and get their perspectives and loop. Like it just keeps looping it back. Uh, yeah, yes. I have a bias uh, and I'm aware of it and uh, I don't try to hide it. I mean, I, have, I, have, I, read a, I read a blog about politics. I have opinions um, and I don't try to hide that on my blog. That's, that's why I write about politics and why I write, you know, write about political history and, and my bias um, and uh, it, I mean, it shapes it shapes what I write about. It shapes what I'm interested in. Um, but at the same time, um, so I'm not trying to be unbiased, but but uh, but I'm trying to be fair, and I'm trying I, I'm I'm trying to always be upfront in terms of what my my perspective is, and, and integrating other people's perspectives, and allowing people a voice. Uh, you know, I mean, the great point, great thing about blogs is you have this thing called the comment section. Um, so people are can absolutely be free to go and disagree with me. Uh, and, you know, I provide that platform on my own blog to do so. And, of course, on social media, people never hesitate to disagree with me. Um, but that's that's fine. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I'm definitely aware of my bias. And, and uh, it, it's hard to find an unbiased person in politics, really. Keisha. I have a little bit of a different perspective on this because I come from a field which considers itself, for the most part, I mean, it's a social science, but it considers itself a science. And in science, you're not supposed to have bias. So the principles of science say that, you know, there is something objective to be studied. And I think this is a real tension in, in my discipline because we are always interpreting, we're, but we're trying to do that based on the scientific method. There go, we should be objective when we study that, but we're people and we do have bias. I would argue there is not a single person alive who is unbiased. That is not the state that we exist in culture and in our, in our relationships and in our interactions. And I personally, especially studying ancient people, I recognize that of course I have a bias because I am a person who lives in this cultural context. I am a woman, I'm Métis. I have my own 
biases. But I think those have value. And I think coming back to Sarah's point, it's not so much that my bias devalues what I have to say. If I'm explicit about it, what it allows me to do is bring a different story into that discussion. So it took women entering the field of archaeology to start thinking about women in the past. It used to be that the default person was a man, an adult male. And as women entered the field, they said, what did it mean to be a woman or a child? What did it mean to have these different roles? And it really took their own perspective today to bring those questions into the conversation. And so I don't think bias is necessarily a weakness. We do have to be explicit about it. We have to talk about how it informs our work. Um, but it can also have a positive outcome because it brings a diversity of voices. That shouldn't undermine the fact that there are still, like I can't come up with something that is not based in the evidence. But my bias is not always necessarily a weakness if I'm explicit about it. Great question, Morgana. Thanks. Greg, your question about cats. Come on up. Someone else is taking responsibility for the cat's question. All right. So this is technically Greg's question, but I've offered to read it for him. And his question is, well, why are cats so awesome? Sarah, I feel like this question is intended for the host of Pet Sounds. I have a podcast that's called Pet Sounds that's all about uh, culture of pets and uh, what it reflects about us, the humans. So why are cats so great? Well, they just are. <laughs> and that there is no alternative truth to that one. Um, personally, why do I love... Do you guys, do you guys like cats? They're okay. You do have something to say. Okay, great. Well, then I'll say something they're, and then... They're, they're okay. <laughs> I have a dog. I also have a dog. I think that cats are great because they are just straight up exactly who they are. They don't make any apology. They just let it all hang out. So I'm going to go all archaeology on this question. <laughs> What's kind of fascinating to me, so I also love cats, I also have a dog, I love animals in general, um, but there's been a rise in the archeology span of our relationships with domesticated pet animals versus food animals. Um, and so, but it's all been dogs almost. So there's a huge literature about how people and dogs developed this relationship that we now have. And dogs have been domesticated potentially for 30,000 years, which is a long time. But there's very little research on cat domestication comparatively. So I would say that we need to know more about how this unique relationship with the awesomeness of a cat. And uh, I, I do love dogs too, but to me there's nothing quite as nice as a warm, fuzzy, purring lap kitty. Uh, my husband likes the dog snuggles, but I'm all about the soft purring uh, cat. And my, my two-year-old daughter likes to sing soft kitty to our cat as well. Uh, and so cats are just demonstrably awesome. We just need to understand better how they came to be so awesome in relationship to us. Amazing. Thank you for that very productive question. So, if I can just sneak this through. On, sneak this in, okay. Uh, on, on the topic of not specifically cats, but talking about pets, there's a great, and we talked about Wikipedia earlier. Yeah. There's a great, one of my favorite, actually one of my top favorite Wikipedia pages is 
um, it lists the pets that, you know, that American presidents have had, like historically. <laughs> and like most, re- most recently, it's like dogs and like the odd cat. But then oh, you go back yeah. far enough and it's like, someone had an elephant that was gifted to him by the King of Siam. And, you know, and then a lot of horses, obviously, um, because they would ride their horses everywhere back in the day. But there's all sorts of weird pets, like someone had a snake and someone had like an orangutan or something. And I, I, presumably they were, they, were, they were living in the zoo and not in the White House. Um, and, and, and just, just, I'm just. like now. You, <laughs> be nice, he, he's living in Trump Tower. Uh, the, 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 uh, so, so anyway, and then just to sneak it in, if, if you, I'd really recommend you guys look at it. There's a whole Wikipedia page to, uh, dedicated to nicknames that George W. Bush had for people, like in his White House and in his cabinet and foreign leaders. And some of the nicknames are just, Fantastic. They're just great. So anyway, go look that up on Wikipedia. It's, really, it's a really good list. It's really funny. I love that you guys are doing research for me for my <laughs> podcast. So thank you for that. And it's just an interesting note is Trump doesn't have a pet. They're not a dog in the White House. Sad. We'll just let everybody Sad. sit with that thought. <laughs> okay. Uh, Erica J., uh, can you please come up uh, with your question about the post-truth era? How do you think future historians will view this current post-truth era? Sarah, I I think you had a good start to this question. Well, thank you for the question. Um, To me, I I feel like we get perspective the more time away from something. So as time passes, just as we were talking earlier about, we have to still figure out how to, to unpack all the stuff that's coming and how to debunk stuff that's coming across social media. I feel like we still need time to kind of process. And it, to me, and maybe I was being pessimistic earlier, but maybe I'm now I'm being optimistic. Um, I just needed the intermission, apparently. Um, I, I really think that it will all sort itself out in the wash, which maybe is like rose-colored glasses. But I, I feel like we get, as we get distance, we get perspective. When it's right here, we can't, it can't come into focus. As it gets a little bit further out, we're able to... So I feel like historians, I feel like people will be able to get a... Be able to talk about the printing press, you know? That there are all these crazy publications coming out. Um, but at the time, it was just like, oh my gosh, did you read that? Did you read that? Did you read that? Did you read that? And now, hundreds of years later, we're able to have some perspective. Kishi, you're exploding to answer this. I'm just like, please, please. Uh, Well, I think it's a really interesting question, and so thank you so much for that. I think, you know, when I was growing up, I never really understood that I was, we're constantly making history, right? So things would happen, and I didn't really recognize when when the Berlin Wall came down, I was young, and I watched it on TV. I didn't recognize it as a historic moment, really. I think I may have sort of had some idea it was important, but not really how. I think this time right now, I don't know if this is because I'm grown up or if it's actually true. I think we're going to be looking at this throughout history as a, as a turning point of a sort. Um, and so I think this is akin to the printing press because we are in a world now where everything is digital, where everybody holds a computer that is more powerful than probably the sixth computer that I owned uh, growing up. And this is going to transform so many things of our society. And I, it, there's been a lot of talk about the Anthropocene, so a new geological era. I think we're in the Digocene, right? We're in this transitional moment where everything is, our way we communicate, the way we interact, the way information is produced. So I think future historians are going to look back at the first few decades of the 
the 21st century as a turning point. I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I do think we are living history in, in a really meaningful way right now. And we're all trying to grapple with these questions because we don't know what it means because it's unprecedented. There's that, uh, that kind of famous or infamous anecdote uh, when Henry Kissinger was in, went to China and, and was talking with, with one, of the, one of the top Chinese officials um, from the, in the People's Republic of China at the time, this had been the 1970s, when the Americans were just opening up relations with, with the PRC. And, and, and the, it, so, so it goes, the, the, the quote is that Kissinger asked him what he thought the implications were of the, of the French Revolution. And, and he said, the reply was, well, it's too soon to tell. So I just thought that's kind of interesting. You know, so, so who knows, it might be 500 years before we really figure out what the implications of today are. I love that quote, but it turns out that actually oh, he no. was probably oh, mistranslated. Oh no! He was actually probably talking. What is your source? Oh, no. what, what is your source? What a great example. Well done, I'm everyone. I'm so sorry. I just, no, no, I, that's great. Because really I've been going around telling everybody that. Yeah, I, I, it, it seems from what I can understand from okay. going down the wiki wormhole, it was uh, he was he was referring to a more recent event. Okay, not the yeah, French Revolution. Yeah, I think it was like student protests in France oh, that he was okay. referring to at that okay. time. Well, but I'm, 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 I'm still not sure what to make of the French Revolution in terms of the impact. Yes. I think I think it's sure. too soon to tell. Still too soon to yeah. tell. Yeah, great question. Thank you so much. Um, so our next question is from a special guest, and I want to just say hello to this category of special guests in the audience. Um, we have some people here who have contributed to the podcast in the past, either as question askers or as voices. Um, so uh, Sheila Thomas, are you still here? I don't know if we... Hi, Sheila. Hi. She was on the most recent episode, The Absent Gravestone. Thank you so much. Uh, is Christy here? Christy Bolter? Okay, uh, and uh, David Garneau is here. Thank you so much. And Kelsey Chief, they appeared in a shadow episode that you haven't heard yet. So Kelsey Chief, I have your question here. Um, can you pick one of these two? Thank you for coming. <laughs> no problem. Uh, how do you confront the legacy of colonialism in your work? Yeah, Keisha. This, I could, I could probably teach an entire course on this one, but um, I'm going to try to keep it sort of straightforward, it's not simple, but archaeology is based on a colonial idea, right? So I, I'm part of the discipline of anthropology, and the whole concept of anthropology is basically white people studying brown people. That's the concept, that's the underlying idea. And uh, my, the legacy of my discipline is one of grave robbing, uh, taking indigenous knowledge away from indigenous people, taking knowledge away from many different people, putting it into museums, uh, studying it for our own gain. So a lot of the work that I do uh, is trying to work against that legacy in my discipline. And there's a lot of discussion about whether or not archaeology can ever fully recover from that. But I work with community members, and primarily in my case, First Nations and Métis communities, to do archaeology in ways that serves them. So using the tools which were used to take knowledge away and trying to find ways to bring knowledge back, working with repatriation, so the return of objects and ancestors from museums to communities for proper reburial and treatment, um, but also then using the tools of archaeology to meet the needs of contemporary communities to help people reconnect uh, with their own cultural heritage or to ensure that, for example, when a pipeline gets built, that archaeological heritage of the people who lived in that area is not being destroyed. So it's not something that's 
easy to do and it's not something that I don't think the work will ever be done. Um, but I think there's ways as archaeologists that we're seeking to uh, work in new and better ways in, in collaboration with, with communities. And certainly in my own work, that is a central ethic of what I do. I, I think for, for journalists who are interested in history, one of the major things we have to overcome is just the idea that history only goes back 150 years or so in Edmonton. The idea that white settlers' history is the only history that matters. So um, that's something that I try to overcome with what I dig into in my own work. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that, that, that's one of the mental things that I'm trying to dig into. It's something that I'm, I'm really cognizant of, I'm terrified of as well. I want to get, for me with journalism and going and interviewing people, I try to get out of the way because it's not about me. But I also know that there's this, I have power because I have the mic in my hand and I'm choosing where to point it and who to interview. I'm daunted by that power. I'm terrified of it and I, I try to make very conscious decisions about who I'm talking to and what stories I'm choosing to tell. Like, I'm sure I get it wrong sometimes. Uh, but I'm, I, I just see it like one of the things that you'll, that I heard a lot going into journalism school and just, you know, that you want to give the voice, you want to give a voice to the voiceless. You want to, you want to tell stories that aren't being told and that's great and that's noble, but like, how do you do that? <laughs> so I just always try to stay vigilant, um, try to stay aware, aware of my bias, uh, and get out of the way. Get out of the way. <laughs> Let people talk. And I mean, I've been talking with Chris about something, um, with CJSR talking about potentially doing station IDs in different dialects um, that, are reflect, that reflect all the people that live in, in Edmonton and the history of Edmonton and before Edmonton was Edmonton. Um, but I also feel like, should I be doing that? Am I the right person to be doing that? I don't know if I am, but I need to be a conduit. So I can be a conduit to like connect the different, care, the different elements. It's like that quote, you know, do the best you can until you know better, and then when you know better, do better. Yeah. Dave? <laughs> I, I think that was Maya Angelou, but I don't know. So if somebody knows, let me know. Yeah, I think that's an. I mean, the, the, going back to the the question, the colonialism, and, and I, I mean, I think that's interesting. When, I mean, it's something that I mean, I'm, I try to be aware of in terms of, of writing about politics in Alberta, uh, politics in Alberta and in Canada. Um, when you talk about when you you know you cover and you write about the structures, for example, I mean, essentially, I mean, the, the, the political system is is a colonial system, right? It's a based on the British kind of British Westminster. Pardon me, Westminster parliamentary system. Our political parties are kind of based around the same model, um, and it's something that you do notice when, uh, like I talked earlier about going through Hansard records, going back to you know pre nineteen seventy one, back into the, you know, with, the, with the newspapers, um, and looking through the Google newspaper archives, and it's very much you know I mean this is you know white people, white rich white men writing about other presumably rich white men, right? So I mean in terms of the, that historical record, it's important to to recognize that like. In, in that world, 
in, in terms of those newspapers, those are the only people that really exist in terms of, of, of that, that historical record because there wasn't, I mean, at least from what I was able to find, there's not much record, there's not much of a, of a, you know, historical record in terms of the newspapers, in terms of covering, um, um, you know, First Nations communities, for example. You know, you go back and you look at, like, the, the, uh, 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 the coverage, like, you go back to the 1920s, 1930s, and some of the awful things that, like, the newspapers in Edmonton were saying about Ukrainians, and, like, it's pretty, na it's pretty nasty stuff, right? So it's, it's, you know, when you go back, you have to understand that context of, you know, this paper is a historical record, but it also has, they also carried these biases, and a lot of them, I mean, there was a lot of real racial biases, you know, race, racism. I am excited because that segues so well into our next two questions, which were sort of about the same idea. Um, Lauren Markowitz, I believe, please pronounce your name into the microphone, um, just so I make sure that we're saying it correctly. Um, and Kyla, right? Kyla was the one who asked this one? I think it was Kyla. Sorry, there are a couple names. Um, yeah, we picked yeah. Kyla's one, right? Yeah. Kyla, come on up. Yeah, both of you, both of you, both of you, yeah. You shockingly pronounced my last name correctly because it's an anglicized yes. Polish last name. Oh, Markowitz. Cool. Uh, Lauren Markowitz. Uh, so my question, well, uh, I agree that we need to uh, go back to the original sources for a story. However, we often speak of documentary evidence. How can we ensure that indigenous voices and histories are not ignored, even though sometimes the only evidence we currently have comes from oral histories related sometimes many generations later? All right, now Kyla Fisher, you had a question, similar topic, right? I did. My question is, how do you balance unwritten histories with the written record? Do you, do you weigh them differently? Thank you so much for your questions. <laughs> Who wants to take a stab at that one first? I'm happy to go. All right, Keisha, the archeologist, <laughs> let's go. Again, all these great questions. Um, so. I think this is, again, I can tie this especially to, to my own discipline. There's, there's a lot of debate in the discipline about the use of, of oral histories, and this has been ongoing for a, a long time because we value the material evidence, but we study Indigenous history in North America. We, that's what we do for the most part, unless we're working in the you know, settler context. So we, I like to think about indigenous histories or, or unwritten histories, like histories have frameworks in which they work. So this question about the, um, something that's been transmitted through generations and has never been written down, there's a tendency to assume that that is less valid than something that has been written down uh, because of the game of proverbial telephone, right? So that if you tell someone and tell someone and tell someone, it gets modified versus if you have a document, it's verifiably true. But what I like to say to that is that indigenous communities have their own systems of knowledge, and it's not that any story is a valid story, and uh, any history is a valid history. So the communities with, with whom I work have their own internal structures for figuring out how they know what's true. It's not the same that I might use, although the principles have a lot in common. Um, so one of the communities I work with are the Simshian community in British Columbia, uh, the Simshian Nation. And they have a very strict protocol about how history gets told. And it's passed on through generations. And if somebody makes a mistake, they will be corrected. And, or if they tell a story that it is not their job to tell, and it's not their right to tell, they will be stopped. So they have their own internal structure for validating what is true. And I think oftentimes from the perspective of archeologists who come in with these Western constructs, they don't see those. 
And so they invalidate those, those indigenous histories, even though they have a much deeper history on that, that land. So I think we need to think about the way that systems of knowledge have their own internal validity uh, as well. Interesting. In the work that I've been doing, I've been doing more documentary style podcasting and radio, longer form. And so to me, it is all about story. And not to say that story is something made up. There's factual, like, based in fact, real life lived experience. And so to me, I, the story and people telling their story has incredible value. Um, and just in the, the medium that I work, I mean, in, in audio, you need to have the storyteller. You need to have the person telling the story that lived it. And I think that there's value in that, just in them, that that, was their perspe that is their perspective. So to me, I print, the printed word is, is great and important and vital, but for the line of work that I'm in, I need somebody to enliven it, and I need someone that has lived it or can speak to the people that did live it. I mean, I'm a sucker for stories. I love them. <laughs> I think you had an interesting example. Um, uh, you've had some interesting examples with your own podcast on eCamp because there are some stories that there is only one spoken source on, and then the fact checking has to be done sort of around it, right? With the, like with the story of the lake um, that was named after the farmer. Yeah, I mean, I I had so it's the there's. I was speaking about it a little bit earlier. The, there's a Japanese farming community um, just outside of Edmonton. And it no longer exists. It was a group of about eight families. And like I had said earlier, they had basically been ostracized and said, well, to heck with that. I'm just going to go over here. I'm a barber. I don't know how to farm, but I'm going to farm. So go out and do that. And uh, the, there's a lake that's now named after one of the families. And so the only surviving person in that family is a woman that actually lived on the farm. She's the only, la the last person. So I went and I spoke with her. And then I had to basically go down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out who else and how else I can talk about this. So there's the actual, like, uh, government records that talk about the lake. And then there's also signage that's you can see on the roadside. It's there. So that actually exists. And then there was <laughs> crazy. This woman moved from Japan to study Japanese people and Ukrainian people living together in this community. She moved from Japan to do that, and she wrote a master's paper on it. So I spoke with her, and I looked into her research looking at um, the different archives, like going into the archives and checking out what, you know, when the town was established. <laughs> just, and it's basically like ping pong. Like you're just, you're just trying to, you know, if you cross enough lines, then you're able to find the spot. You can, you know, if you talk to this person and then they bop you over here and there's just enough cross, cross sections that you're, intersections that you're able to pin down facts. <laughs> Did that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And also, I just want to acknowledge my own need to learn more about systems of oral histories. I, I, I don't want to um, unintentionally combine too much 
histories that are told orally and systems of oral history. I admit, I've got to do some learning on that. Yeah. All right. Um, Mohammed, do you want to come up and uh, ask your question here? Hi, guys. Um, so is history a human construct? And does the historian's bias affect the path of history? Is history a human construct? I, I, I think I would like to take the first stab at that, which is the, just that I think reality to me is just a bunch of stuff that is not really in order. It's just out there. And the exciting job of journalism is getting to assemble it into something coherent, a path that you can follow to explain why things are the way they are. So I would say absolutely history is a construct. That doesn't mean there aren't true things about history, but just the idea of adding a narrative to that stuff that's out there, to me, is absolutely a human construct. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I, think, I think we actually need to think of histories, plural, uh, because I think histories uh, are, can be different depending on the humans telling them. And uh, so it is our, I think it is a framework in which we make sense of the past. So the way we think about history in a way in this room we might sort of share a certain sense of history is a sequence of things that occurred in the past that we can make sense of through narrative, through people's experiences, but they happened in the past, right? So it's a framework for making sense of that past. There are multiple different ways in which cultures do this. Um, so there are many histories that get told and the ways they get told absolutely depend upon the people who tell them and the way that histories get told also influence how things occur, right? So the events of history that we might think of, you know, the, the, there's the classic saying, again, I, don't, I can't attribute this to a person, but that if we don't know history, we're doomed to repeat it and some version thereof. So we have this sense that we can learn something about what we did before so we don't do it again. And there's a lot of talk right now in this moment about what happened in the 1930s and so that we don't repeat our mistakes that, that happened in the 1930s. Um, so I, I think the, the stories that get told influence the decisions that we make in the present. And this is why it's really important to have multiple people telling histories. So when you only have you know, white male academics telling history, you're gonna get one version. Um, and this is really important, again, as, as someone who's Métis, there's been a real push to, for Métis people to tell Métis history because we'll tell different stories. And the events might be the same, but the way that the historian spins them influence how, how people think about them, uh, and then can influence how they think about themselves and how they think about their future. So I really think it's important for multiple histories to get told. Yeah, I like, the, I like your comment about uh, you framing it as histories instead of history, because that is something that, that is really important to recognize, that when you read a history book, you know, this is a story that someone's telling, and it's, you have to understand that, you know, these people who, you know, historians have their own biases, and, and, you know, whether they like to admit it or not, you know, they're also products of their time at the same, same time. So when was that history recorded? When was that history book written? Um, if it was written in the 1920s, it probably has a different, you know, it'll probably have different, the, the author will probably have different biases and different, different opinions and different feelings than someone in 2017, hopefully, maybe, um, likely. Uh, so I think that's, a, that's important to understand is that, you know, it just, I mean, just because it's written in a book, it doesn't mean it's just, that's absolutely the, you know, the holy, the holy truth. That's, you know, sorry. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that's not what I meant. Uh, <laughs> interpret that as you want. Um, but, uh, but, you know, 
you can have multiple histories about the same topic, about the same events that have that draw different conclusions about what, you know, what what the implications are, or what actually happened, motivations, absolutely, yeah. This feels like an excellent note to end on. Thank you so much to all of you for coming, and for your fantastic questions. Round of applause for you guys. I. I I have quite a list of thank yous. Um, thank you to the Needle Vinyl Tavern for hosting us. Uh, yeah, thanks, Needle. You guys are great. I have a, a whole bunch more, so you might want to save the rest of your applause. Um, the Edmonton Heritage Council, especially uh, Miranda, Jimmy, David Ridley, and Ryan Stevens, who's here today helping out. Thank you so much. Um, to the Edmonton Historical Board uh, for supporting this podcast in general and also this event. Uh, Sonia Caligiuri, for, she did a lot of the work getting us here today. Um, the Strathcona Archaeological Society, thank you for coming out. Uh, Shaw TV, thank you for sharing this even wider. Um, thank you to our wonderful panelists. Can we have a round of applause for them? Thank you to Finn. My husband. This banner, that's all Finn. Yeah. Including this, the matching, that, that he coordinated. And I just want to say, I did not plan this uniform that you are all wearing. Yeah. We all called each other ahead of time, you know, planned it out. I missed that text. We didn't want to clash. Right. Uh, thank you to uh, Doug Hoyer for composing the music that you will hear in the finished podcast version of this. Uh, and thank you to Andrea Hergy from Mount Pioneer Design for making our logo. And thanks, everyone, for coming today. We have a ton of links on the Let's Find Out website if you want to learn more about the issues and resources that we talked about in this episode. That's letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can send me your questions for future episodes at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>